0: Brad Wilson with the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions, part of the uh, Department of Politics here at Princeton University. Uh, Before uh, getting on with today's program, I just want to uh, mention, uh, remind you that on Thursday, uh, here, same time, we have Michael Stokes Paulson. from the University of Minnesota School of Law uh, speaking on uh, Lincoln uh, as Commander-in-Chief uh, and uh, what, we, what lessons we might learn from uh, Lincoln's understanding and experience uh, in our own time uh, in our war on terror. Uh, next week, Wednesday and Thursday, Wednesday night and then all day Thursday over in Whig Hall, Uh, We are sponsoring our uh, first spring conference uh, on the renaissance of Jewish philosophy in America. Uh, I uh, uh, recommend that uh, you take a look at our website. Uh, You just go to the university website and type in Madison Program in the search engine and go to the events page or the conference page and uh, you will find uh, a program for next week's conference there. Well, it's my pleasure uh, to introduce to you today William Saunders, uh, who is Senior Fellow and Director of the Family Research Council Center for Human Life and Bioethics. Uh, uh, Bill Saunders uh, 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 went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and on to Harvard uh, Law School, where I believe uh, You were a colleague of uh, Professor Robert George. uh, Go went through law school together. Uh, Bill uh, wears a number of hats at the Family Research Council. Uh, One is his director uh, is being director of the center's work on uh, life issues. So he's very much involved in the. Uh, public discussion of uh, such matters, uh, serious moral matters as stem cell research and human cloning. Uh, he serves as human rights counsellor, uh, a council at the Family Research Council, directing the council's UN work and international activities. Uh, 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 Mr. Saunders has written and lectured on topics of international law, human rights, and the family. He was appointed by President uh, Bush to serve on the United States delegation to the United Nations Special, special Session on Children in 2001 and 2002, uh, and then in 2004, uh, Mr. Saunders served on the NGO Working Committee in connection with the Doha International Conference for the Family. He's presently on the organizing committee for the World Congress of Families, the uh, fourth uh, meeting, which will be held in Poland in 2007. Uh, today, uh, Mr. Saunders will be speaking to us on the Doha Declaration, The World uh, Affirms the Natural of Family and Marriage. Please welcome Bill Saunders.
1: Afternoon. Um, In December 2004, the United Nations General Assembly observed the final event of the second international year of the family. The General Assembly officially received the reports of family conferences that took place throughout the world over the course of 2004. And it adopted a resolution that, quote, welcomed the hosting of the Doha International Conference for the Family from November the 29th to the 30th of 2004 by the state of Qatar and takes note of its outcome, which is the Doha Declaration. Now the Doha Declaration had been negotiated at a meeting of uh, 70 nations in Qatar in November 2004. Of the 191 member states of the General Assembly, 149 served as co-sponsors for the resolution receiving, uh, uh, that I just read excerpts from, receiving the Doha Declaration in the General Assembly. Thus, uh, to anticipate my conclusion today, the world affirmed the natural family and marriage on that day while rejecting a right to abortion. In so doing, the Doha Declaration marked a high point in the long struggle against efforts to undermine the family and individual life at the UN. Presently, in the nation of Colombia, there are three lawsuits that are pending, each of which challenges Colombia's domestic law, which forbids abortion. Among other claims the plaintiffs are making in these lawsuits, they allege that international law requires Colombia to make abortion available. At the same time, in Peru, the government has been ordered to take measures to provide reparations to a young woman who was denied an abortion several years ago. The government of Peru was so ordered by the UN Human Rights Committee, and it was ordered to do so despite the fact that Peru's domestic laws forbid abortion. In the United States in 2003, in its opinion in Lawrence v. Texas, the Supreme Court ruled um, or relied upon foreign law in overturning its own precedent of Bowers v. Hardwick and in holding that Texas' law against homosexual sodomy violated the due process clause of the U.S. Constitution. The court looked to Europe, finding decisions of the European Court of Human Rights particularly illuminating as to, quote, values we share with a wider civilization, end quote. The court, the Supreme Court, relied on the uh, European Court of Human Rights' decision, despite the fact that the European Court of Human Rights, in this case in question, had looked to a contemporary, unratified document, the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the EU, in order to interpret language in a treaty which was it, been adopted 30 years before the case came to court. So in the case relied upon by the Supreme Court, or not relied upon but cited by the Supreme Court, the European Court of Human Rights had relied upon a contemporary document to interpret the meaning of words in a treaty from 30 years before. So in all three of these nations, courts are being asked to and sometimes do rely upon international law in one form or another to decide cases arising under domestic law, under national law. The same is occurring with increasing frequency elsewhere. So let's start with a little bit of the basics. What is international law? There are two kinds of international law. Um, there are treaties and there is custom. The United States Constitution treats the two differently. Article 6 of the Constitution provides, quote, This Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in thereof, pursuance thereof, and all treaties made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land. Article 6 speaks only of treaties. The reason for this is that the terms of treaties are clear. Treaties between nations are like contracts between individuals. Each party can read the written terms, the written language, and decide whether or not it wants to be bound by those terms or whether it wants to negotiate new ones or whether it simply wants to stay away from the agreement, uh, the treaty altogether. Custom, however, which is unwritten, always requires evidence to establish it. An example of a treaty concerning human rights is the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which was ratified by the United States during the presidency of George Bush, the elder. This was the treaty relied upon by the Human Rights Committee in the Peruvian case I mentioned before. The committee found the uh, Peruvian National had a right to abortion based on Articles 2, 7, 17, and 24 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. These articles concern the following. The provision of a domestic remedy for violations of the covenant, the prohibition of, quote, torture, Or cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment, end quote. The prohibition of, quote, arbitrary or unlawful interference with privacy, end quote. And, quote, the right of every child to such measures of protection as are required by his status as a minor. Now, for those of you that don't deal with this all the time, you might be wondering what is the Human Rights Committee? Where does it come from? What is it? Is it an international court similar to something you may have heard of, the International Court of Justice at The Hague? Or is it like one of the tribunals? uh, Perhaps on the news this morning I saw the tribunal that's trying Saddam Hussein. Is it similar to one of those? Tribunals that were also set up for Rwanda and the Balkans? Or is it like a, a new institution called the International Criminal Court Well, in fact, it's not like any of those. It's not a court. It's a committee. And in a university setting, I assume most of you know that committees are often to be avoided, sometimes to be feared. Um, It was created by Article 28 of the uh, Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Now, under the uh, covenant, nations that have ratified the covenant... And again, it's like signing onto a contract. So you have the treaty; it's circulated among nations. Only nations that sign it are bound by it. Just like if you don't sign a contract with somebody, they don't—they don't, they don't have—you don't have an obligation to them under that contract. So nations that have ratified the treaty have to submit periodic reports to the committee. I've been present in the, in the uh, UN when. Um, The United States has submitted a report uh, about 10 years ago, Um, and they proceed, there's a a podium, or not a podium, a a dais with however many members are of the committee, it varies, let's say 18 or so, and then the United States comes in and presents its understanding of how it has complied with the treaty, and how it may not have complied with the treaty or areas in which it needs to improve. And then, quote, Article 41 provides, the committee shall study the reports submitted by the states. It shall transmit its reports and such general comments as it may consider appropriate to the state parties. In other words, to the states uh, who have ratified or the states who are presenting their reports to it. The committee may also transmit to the Economic and Social Council these comments, along with copies of the reports from the nations it has received. Now, nations, uh, if you're a signatory, you have an opportunity to elect the members of the, of the committee. So that's how the committee is, is uh, formed and how its members are chosen. It receives reports from the states who have ratified the treaty, and it makes general comments that it considers appropriate to the state's parties as to the question of how they have fulfilled the terms of the treaty, which they're bound by. Each human rights treaty results in the establishment of a committee. It's a committee peculiar to that particular Treaty. They're not courts, and their interpretations of, of language in the treaty is not binding law in any sense. It is simply an opinion by a panel of experts as to the issues that may have been raised by the state submitting a report various committees have issued responses to state reports that are sometimes scarcely short of ludicrous. For instance, the committee connected to the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women suggested that Belarus should eliminate Mother's Day and that China should legalize prostitution, both in the name of eliminating discrimination against women. Now, organizations committed to abortion rights or homosexual uh, rights, rights to homosexual or gay marriage, use the pronouncements of these committees either to argue for evidence of the development of a customary international law norm. I'll return to customary international law in a couple minutes. Or they use these opinions from the committees to pressure the nation who submitted the uh, report into changing its own laws which are allegedly not in accord with the international norms reflected in the opinion of the committee. This can be demonstrated for instance from a document entitled quote summary of strategic planning from the Center for Reproductive Rights that was leaked in the fall of 2003, and which was subsequently placed in the congressional record by Congressman Chris Smith of New Jersey on December the 8th. I don't want to read uh, several sentences, a long paragraph from that document. Okay, the document states, quote, the overreaching goal is to ensure that governments worldwide guarantee reproductive rights out of an understanding that they are legally bound to do so. Supplementing treaty-based standards and often contributing to the development of future hard norms are, are a variety of soft norms. These norms result from interpretations of human rights committees, which I was just mentioning, rules of international tribunals, rulings of international tribunals, resolutions of intergovernmental political bodies, agreed conclusions in international conferences, and reports of special rapporteurs. Sources of soft norms include the European Court of Human Rights, the body cited by the Supreme Court in v. Texas, the CEDAW Committee, Provisions from the Platform for Action of the Beijing Fourth World Congress Conference on Women, and reports from the Special Rapporteur on the Right to Health. We'll get into some of these uh, in more detail in a few minutes, but the point is uh, these sources are being used, strategic planning, to create a hard law norm and to give governments the impression. Convince governments, in a sense, in a lobbying way, to believe that they are legally obligated to change their laws because they of these various sources. Now, I said uh, I mentioned customary international law. Two kinds of two sources of international law: treaties and custom. So we just talked about treaties. The uh, International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights is a treaty. So now what's customary international law? Simply put, it is the custom of nations, which over time gains the consent of all the nations of the world. The Supreme Court has said that customary international law is applied in the United States as federal common law. Uh, I'll just say parenthetically for any of you who are taking legal courses, some people don't believe there is such a thing as federal common law, but the Supreme Court has said customary international law is applied in the U.S. as federal common law. Article 6 of the Constitution does not speak of customary international law, read to the provision, it just talks about treaties. Thus, customary international law is not supreme in U.S. courts over other laws as treaties are. A treaty which is later in time than a federal statute trumps the statute. Customary international law does not necessarily do that. It doesn't have the same status as treaties do. To determine the legal obligations imposed by a treaty should be easy. As I said, it's like a contract, so simply look at the express language of the document. Custom, on the other hand, has not, by definition, been reduced to writing. There are no precise legal terms to apply. You're inferring it from practice, so you don't have a document. You don't have the terms. So how do we determine what it is? There are two views as to how you do that. The classical view is that you find customary international law in the customs of nations, in actual dealings, one with another, nation to nation, over an extended period of time, decades. This is the classical view only recognizes dealings among states, not between a state and its own citizens, as being subject to development as customary international law. Opposed to the classical view is what might be called the bold position. The bold position, uh, as in this, in this instance, as does the classical uh, view, requires unanimity among nations. But in all other respects, the bold position differs from the classical view. Instead of requiring an emerging practice over decades, it will find custom developing much more quickly. In fact, under it, you could find customary international law crystallized at a single international meeting. Instead of restricting its purview to dealings between states as the classical theory does, the bold theory includes dealings between a state and its citizens. Whereas the classical view, in order to to establish what the custom is, relied upon, quote, the works of jurists and commentators, who by years of labor, research, and experience have made themselves peculiarly well acquainted with the subjects of which they treat Not for the speculations of their authors concerning what the law ought to be, but for the trustworthy evidence of what the law really is, end quote. Which the classical view, that's what they would rely on, if necessary. The bold view finds evidence of custom from speculative writings of uh, legal scholars, from unratified treaties, from statements from international or UN conferences or meetings, and from UN resolutions. I want you to stop, those of you who don't know anything about this area, just stop and think of what I said for a minute. One of the sources of customary international law, according to the bold theory, is unratified treaties. I think it's remarkable that anyone would, would claim that an unratified treaty could bind a nation who has chosen not to ratify that treaty. Remember, these treaties are open to any nation's ratifying. So we're talking about a situation in which a nation is not ratified. The argument under the bold position is the unratified treaty is evidence of customary international law, which then binds the nation that would not ratify, did not ratify the treaty. And then recall what I mentioned a minute ago from the uh, planning document from the Center for Reproductive Rights concerning soft norms uh, of international law and how they can be used to lead to establishing custom. We'll come back to that again in a couple of minutes. And just another parenthetical is an even bolder position than the bold position was taken by our Supreme Court in Lawrence v. Texas because the court did not find it necessary to ascertain international law. Rather, it looked to evolving standards in only one part of the world, Europe, where standards on the subject were likely to be quite different from other parts of the world, such as the Middle East, Asia, Africa, and Latin America. And while the Court ultimately was interpreting the Constitution, not applying customary international law as such, the point for you to notice is that the Court was more than willing to look to foreign or international precedents in order to do that, to interpret our Constitution. In in the 1990s, the UN convened several international conferences. There had been international conferences before, but in the 1990s there was um, a whole string of these. The most important ones the ones that really set the agenda for the following conferences were the Cairo Conference on Population and Development, held in Cairo, Egypt in 1994, and, in, and the conference held in Beijing, China, on the status of women in 1995. Each conference addressed many topics. Um, if you ever read a UN document from one of these conferences, you'll see they're very I don't know if they're comprehensive or ambitious or however you want to put it, but they address almost everything you can think of. But the most contentious issue dealt uh, that came up was, not surprisingly, abortion. But at neither conference was a general right to abortion agreed upon by the national delegates. At each conference, uh, the delegates adopted a platform for action. Uh, this is a consensus document that states how uh, over the next five years and five years after that, the uh, conclusions of the conference will be implemented. It's called a platform for action. So there's a platform for action from Beijing and one from Cairo. They were supposed to be reviewed every five years, forever, really. So 1994 would have been the fifth year, I mean the 10th year review of the uh, Cairo conference. And the following year, last year, was a 10th year review of the Beijing conference. However, from the very beginning, these conferences were very controversial. I don't know how many of you remember them or participated in them. They were controversial, of course, around the question of abortion, but also around the question of the family. Uh, Cardinal Lopez Trujillo, who is the president of the uh, Vatican's Council on the Family, noted that ever since, quote, ever since the beginning of preparations for the year of the family in 1994, there was an attempt to consider families in the plural and to avoid the use in singular of the family by those seeking to change the traditional definition, end quote. Now, following Cairo and Beijing, so after 1995, those favoring homosexual rights or a right to gay marriage and abortion rights have been obligated to engage in what is really such the delicate maneuverings of a minuet the plain fact is the nations of the world will not agree to express language in favor of either gay marriage or abortion they will not some nations would but the nations of the world will not thus the proponents of such rights have have had to rely upon what is called in technical UN parlance agreed, quote, agreed language or, quote, consensus language from earlier documents. So there's a meeting three years after Beijing or Cairo. Every one of these meetings has a document that comes out, an outcome document. Every meeting is, almost all the time is spent in negotiating the language of these documents The easiest way to agree on language is to say, well, on this subject we will use agreed language or consensus language from previous documents. That way you don't have to get into a fight again about new language. So you repeat language. This is called consensus language. Some of the, the language has centered around, quote, reproductive health and, quote, various forms of the family. Those who have been arguing that an international right to abortion or and or uh, gay marriage for either of those have had to argue not at the UN, not at these meetings, because the the nations of the world won't accept it. I was present when the when abortion came up once by name, blew up the meeting. You won't get an agreement. Some nations would favor it, but others won't, and they won't sign a document that uses the language. So, those in favor of these things have had to argue in law review articles and in the courts that the language that's repeated from document after document, the various forms of the family or reproductive health, actually means, respectively, gay marriage or uh, gay marriage and abortion. Now, at the five-year reviews of Cairo and Beijing, there were efforts made to get more explicit language used uh, on these two subjects, but it failed. Now, it's a sad fact that some. Uh, you, you might wonder why does any of this matter? Uh, what the language is in a document? Well, one reason it matters is customary international law, as I'm as I'm telling you. If it becomes a customary international law norm, it is then law. American courts do apply customary international law. It's not uh, as significant as a treaty, but it is significant, it is law. But one of the reasons besides that that it's so important is that these documents are often used as guidelines for lending institutions. So that the IMF or the World Bank may make lending to developing countries contingent upon compliance with or efforts to fulfill the terms of the platforms for action from Cairo and Beijing. They won't, it it won't be put in terms of you must legalize abortion, but the pressure will be placed on these nations to do that or to change their laws. The EU has done it uh, as well. The EU is a great, huge lender. In an infamous case or notorious case of Nicaragua in the early 1990s, where they tried to pressure the Minister of the Family to support legalization uh, of abortion. Now, this strategy that I've been describing, which is developing customary international law by stealth. which seems in many respects implausible, nevertheless had a real chance of success as long as it was unchallenged. The thesis behind the idea is we take these terms that are a little bit ambiguous or somewhat ambiguous, reproductive health, various forms of the family, we repeat them over and over, in document after document, at meeting after meeting, in platform for action after platform for action, and then we assert that that has become customary international law, and the meaning of the terms that are ambiguous is either abortion or uh, gay marriage. Still, there was, a ch- there was a chance this strategy could succeed if it had not been challenged, but the challenge came in earnest uh, under the administration of George W. Bush. In 2001, the United Nations convened its special session on children, this was actually 10 years after a meeting a previous world summit on children as i said at these at these meetings what you do is the delegates spend all their time negotiating those big rooms you see on tv if you ever see the uh, un the delegate rooms they'll be full there'll be a chairman and they will go through a document phrase by phrase by phrase with as many as 191 nations able to challenge it, suggest alternatives, amend it. It's quite can be quite a tedious process, and the, the heads of state then arrive on the last day and sign the document. So there's a there's built-in uh, incentives to end the negotiations in time for the heads of states to sign the documents. And in 2001, the U.S. convened a special session on children. Um, The U.S. delegation, which was the first international delegation under President Bush, did not support the same positions on abortion and, and the family that had been supported under the Clinton administration. In its final statement, which is attached to the net to uh, to the to the outcome document okay. every nation is there, hundred ninety one nations. every nation can, if it wants to, attach an interpretive statement to the outcome document. You'll see what I mean by interpretive statement. so this was the first one under President Bush, and it was attached as official part of the record for the outcome document from the world. Uh, the special session on children. The U.S. in this statement said that it did not accept reaffirmation of either Cairo's platform for action or Beijing's platform for action as endorsement of abortion. So in other words, it's being argued that every time in in these meetings that there's a phrase that says, and we something like we reaffirm the commitments or the outcome of the Cairo conference, the Beijing conference, and it may list many others. And it's been argued, and it was being argued, that by repetition of that language, this was somehow affirming a right to abortion, which is not mentioned. Uh, Directly in those documents, but it's argued as under the term of reproductive health. So the U.S. stated that affirmation of Cairo and or Beijing did not, in its understanding, mean an affirmation of a right to abortion. And the U.S. said it did not accept that any of a host of terms that were used in this document having to do with reproductive health or uh, public health or... um, Social services included abortion. And furthermore, the U.S. said the following. I'm going to read you a paragraph from this statement. The United States reaffirms that, quote, this is, I'm going to tell you about this quote in a minute, but this is, the the United States reaffirms that, and then it quotes several sentences. The family is the natural and fundamental group unit of society. And is entitled to protection by society and the state. The right of men and women of marriageable age to marry and to found a family shall be recognized, and motherhood and childhood are entitled to special care and assistance. That's the end of the quoted part, uh, the quotes within the quote. The U.S. goes on to say it stresses, that is, the U.S. stresses the need to further address the importance of family stability. The role of fathers and parent child communication on responsible sexual behavior. As regards the phrase, quote, various forms of the family exist, end quote, the United States understands this to include single parent and extended families. The United States reaffirms that governments can support families by promoting policies that help strengthen the institution of marriage and help parents rear their children in positive and healthy environments end of quote from the U.S. statement. The U.S. position at the U.N. Special Session was supported by many nations, particularly those from the developing world. Efforts to advance new language um, perhaps intended to be friendlier to uh, gay marriage, quote, the family in its various forms was defeated and the language that had always been used, various forms of the family exist, was used. However, uh, advocates in favor of abortion rights and homosexual rights or gay marriage renewed efforts at regional UN conferences, and this was at almost every UN conference, regardless of the topic of the conference, to promote their views. The Center for Reproductive Rights perhaps fearing its long-term strategy that I read to you a few minutes ago, was going to fail in the United States, filed a lawsuit in July 2001 in the Southern District of New York against President George W. Bush, alleging that customary international law had developed to include a right to abortion. So this is what I mentioned before. The argument is, somehow, a right to abortion not mentioned by name anywhere In any of these documents has developed and binds the United States, it was alleged in this lawsuit. The lawsuit, though, was dismissed for lack of standing, which is kind of a technical term. It it was no decision on the merits. Now, it is in this, what I call, context of conflict that the Doha Declaration assumes its importance. 2004 was the 10th anniversary of the Cairo Conference, and it was the 10th anniversary of the first international year of the family. So these conferences are called Cairo Plus Ten or the International Year of the Family Plus Ten. Not poetic, but I suppose it's very descriptive. Now, the government of Qatar, which was chairman of the group of 77. And you know what the Group of 77 is? It is the successor to the Non Aligned Nations Movement. The Non Aligned Movement were those nations who, who didn't side with the US or with the Soviet Union in the Cold War, but tried to chart their own path, included countries like Yugoslavia uh, under Tito and uh, India, et cetera, et cetera. It is composed of many more than 77 nations. It's well over 100, still called the Group of 77. So the government of Qatar in 2004 was the president of the Group of 77. So in that role, it wanted to do something particularly to uh, affirm the importance of the family and marriage and wanted to focus international attention on the pressures the family was under. The goal was to forge a renewed commitment to support and promote the family and thus they came up with the idea of the Doha International Conference for the Family which is the the official name of it. Now the the aim of the Doha International Conference for the Family was to explore and analyze implications of Article 16.3 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I'll tell you more about that in a minute but it proclaims quote that the family is the natural and fundamental group unit of society and is entitled to protection by society and the state end quote the family is the natural and fundamental group unit of society and is entitled to protection by society and the state so the aim of the conference was to take that language from the universal declaration and explore its meaning It was a year-long preparatory uh, process before the Doha meetings, which were held at the end of November 2004. There were governmental events, regional dialogues, and hundreds of locally organized civil society meetings, including major conferences in Mexico City and Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. During the final meeting in Doha in November of 2004, representatives from governments, civil society, the private sector, non-governmental organizations, religious groups, and academia evaluated the outcomes of these preparatory events that were held around the world, reviewed the findings and documents from these conferences, and developed their own recommendation. This series of interlocking events concluded in, in, in Doha and, quote, revitalize public support for reinforcing family programs as an essential element in creating a just, stable, and secure world, end quote, which echoes language from the UN Secretary General who called uh, for the world to observe the 10th anniversary of the International Year of the Family. Now, as I mentioned, the effort was to focus on, on... Article 16 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And I haven't mentioned that before. I haven't mentioned the Universal Declaration. but it is the basis for all human rights treaties <clears throat> since 19, since 1948 when it was uh, released. And it is furthermore the bedrock of the United Nations system itself, in a sense, because it was the General Assembly of the United Nations who released the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. Now, if there ever was a, a uh, statement from an international meeting that can be said to attain the status of customary international law, the Universal Declaration is it. What does it say about marriage, the family, and human life? I'm going to quote some of the provisions for you. Article 3, everyone has the right to life. Article 16, men and women of full age, without any limitation due to race, nationality, or religion, have the right to marry and found a family. The family is a natural and fundamental group unit of society. It is entitled to protection by society and the state. Article 25 Motherhood and childhood are entitled to special care and assistance. If customary international law, as defined by what I call the bold view, which is it's enunciated at international meetings, it pertains to relations between the state and its citizens, and it's adhered to through a sense of obligation then customary international law simply does not support a right to abortion and it does does support the natural family, as you can tell from those provisions I just read to you. However, the nations of the world did not leave the protection of human rights to the uncertain processes of development of customary international law. They embodied them in two treaties. So here we come around to treaties again, written documents, One of these is the 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 International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which I've mentioned before. So, what does international law, this time in a treaty form, say about life in the family? Let me quote some of its provisions Article 6 of the Covenant Every human being has the inherent right to life. Article 23, the family is the natural and fundamental group unit of society and is entitled to protection by society and the state. The, the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights has been ratified by over 150 nations, as has the, the other covenant, uh, which also contains language uh, about the family and the state's obligation to provide it with protection and assistance, the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. International law, whether in customary form of, for instance, the Universal Declaration, or in a treaty form, as I've just quoted to you, gives little support to the notion that a right to abortion or gay marriage has developed since the Universal Declaration was issued in 1948. The treaties were in the early, uh, came ratified in the early 60s. And it is precisely the concepts from the Universal Declaration and from the treaties that I've just quoted to you that are incorporated in the Doha Declaration, using the precise language of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the covenant of civil civil and political rights. For instance, we reaffirm the family is the natural and fundamental group unit of society and is entitled to the widest possible protection and assistance by society and the state. We uh, some of these I haven't read to you, but all this is taken right out of these documents. We commit ourselves to recognizing and strengthening the family's supporting, educating, and nurturing roles, with full respect for the world world's diverse cultural, religious uh, values. We recognize the inherent dignity of the human person, and note that the child, by reason of his physical and mental immaturity, needs special safeguards and care before as well as after birth. Motherhood and childhood are entitled to special care and assistance. Everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of person. When Qatar and the other 70 nations, which signed the Doha Declaration, took it to the United Nations in December, on December 6, 2004, only one group of nations opposed it. That was the European Union, which is, uh, they're kind of informal groupings of organizations. The Rio group is Latin America. The EU is the, it's called the EU, but it's, it's the European nations in their sovereign in capacity, not as a unit. But anyway, it was the EU bloc. The delegate from the Netherlands, who was chairman of the EU bloc, said, quote, although the family is the basic unit of society, its concept and composition has changed in the course of time. It is not up to the state to impose limitations on the basis of race, nationality, religion, which you will recall from the uh, Universal Declaration, I'm sorry, from the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the Universal Declaration, similar language, State may not impose limitations on race, national based on race, nationality, or religion. And the delegate from Netherlands adds sexual orientation. End quote. So not surprisingly, given that the Universal Declaration, as I read to you a few minutes ago, prohibits the state from putting limitations on marriage only, only on the basis of race, nationality, or religion. Not sexual orientation is not mentioned. The argument of the EU and the, uh, the uh, Netherlands delegate was rejected and the declaration was accepted. The President of the General Assembly noted, I particularly welcome the, decla- the Doha Declaration, which reaffirmed international commitments including UN resolutions and declarations uh, on the family and called upon all governments, international organization, and members of civil society to take effective measures to support the family in times of peace and war, end quote. The Doha Declaration uh, was organized so that um, it's two main bodies are reaffirmation of the commitments to the family, which were some of the paragraphs I just read you, and then a call for action. And the call for action was in the areas of cultural, religious, and social values, human dignity, the family, marriage, parents, and children. And so I'll just read you a couple of these. Um, So the signatories, it says, the signatories call upon all governments, international organizations, and members of civil society to... Evaluate and assess the extent to which international law and policies conform to the principles and provisions related to the family contained in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Reaffirms the importance of faith and religious and ethical beliefs in maintaining family stability and social progress. Reaffirm commitments to provide a quality education for all. Evaluate and reassess government policies to ensure that the inherent dignity of human beings is recognized and protected throughout all stages of life develop indicators to evaluate the impact of programs on family stability strengthen policies and programs which enable families to break the cycle of poverty enable and I'm sorry evaluate and reassess government program uh, population policies Particularly in countries with below replacement level birth rates, encourage and support the family to provide care for older persons and persons with disabilities, etc., etc. Recall what I said a few minutes ago about the importance of using previously agreed consensus language. The language of the Doha Declaration is a preeminent example of doing just that. The terms of the Doha Declaration trace the Universal Declaration and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights exactly. That language means today in 2006 what it meant in New York in 2004 at the UN meetings of the World Summit of Children in 2001 and what it meant when originally adopted in 1948 in the Universal Declaration of Human Human Rights. It does not, such language does not include a right to gay marriage or to abortion. Its reiteration in the Doha Declaration shows that customary international law has not developed. Remember, it would have to develop through consensus of the world's nations. has not developed to include such rights. The Doha Declaration is now an official UN document that will be cited at future UN meetings. It was developed by approximately half the nations of the world, or almost, and received uh, at the General Assembly by consensus of the General Assembly. Through the Doha Declaration, the world affirmed long-standing commitments to marriage, the family, and human rights and human life. Individuals and organizations who wish to establish contrary rights, such as to gay marriage or to abortion, will will now have to convince their fellow citizens that it is wise public policy in the service of the common good to, to adopt national laws or international treaties which do so.
0: much, Bill. Uh, it's the custom here in the Madison program to give the first questions to students, uh, either from Princeton University or elsewhere. Does, is there a student who has a question? I've got one of my own, if no one <laughs> else is going to step up. Uh, my question then, uh, is, what uh, whether uh, the Doha declaration has been recognized as a defeat by those who wish to read into customary law uh, uh, gay marriage and right to abortion
1: you know it's kind of yes and no I mean the significance of it is 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 clear and you could see that from the statement the uh, opposition of the EU to receiving the document Because the EU wanted to argue that an international, I suppose, customary right to uh, non discrimination, well, to gay marriage had developed. So they saw the significance of it. Uh, Advocacy organizations, you know, would never would never concede it. But the the point really is what arguments will be made and be persuasive in the courts, in the US courts. Um, under even that bold view I enunciated I think the Doha Declaration as well as things like the U.S.'s statements which have been repeated at all the meetings since the World Summit on Children and similar statements repeated by other nations I think uh, defeat the customary international law argument but to some extent it will be, it'll be decided in a court
0: Dr. Mooney.
1: It's really, I mean, it's a very good point for, for a reason you may you may not suspect, which is at the United Nations, as I say, I was present when, when the word abortion was um, used, and it, it, it never is because um, they don't want to have any more fights about it. So those who support it allege it's covered by reproductive health. And those who don't allege it isn't. But... Um, a lot of the nations, of the, for instance, Latin America, almost every country in Latin America has significant restrictions on abortion. So their constitutions have restrictions. So a delegate to the United Nations from a Latin American country, by and large, cannot support any language that has to do with abortion. But um, international uh, bureaucratic class is, you know, politically liberal, and these delegates live in New York, and so They tend to not put up a fight over language, even if they know the other side is going to allege later it means abortion. So in other words, they'll go along with it rather than argue about it. So the choice of the delegates to the U.N. is very important, and most Latin American countries don't pay any attention to it. And you have countries like Mexico uh, being represented um, a few years ago by someone who wouldn't even let the Mexican head of the special session delegation meet with its, uh, her U.S. counterpart. They played games so that she couldn't even meet with them because they, they support the left's view on these things. So who the delegates are is really important. A nation should have delegates that reflect its views, and if you don't know what its views are, then say the views of whoever is the, uh, the president or the party in power. But when I say they ratify it, that's a technical legal term uh, which sometimes means when I said about the U.S. ratified the, co- the covenant on civil and political rights the Senate has to vote on it and they ratified it so it was it was ratified by the Senate and it's it's interesting because it was done under the Bush administration uh, Bush father Bush and uh, you don't usually think of Republican Republican administrations as being those that would sign on to human rights treaties because of all these problems I've been talking about but in fact they got it passed but they added a provision saying the treaty was not self-executing which means the only way to put the provisions of the treaty into law is to enact statutes which which keeps the courts the point being it and it was intended to keep the court out of interpreting the provisions of the treaty in the U.S. So it's kind of complicated. But when, but when I say ratified, I could mean a vote by the General Assembly or a vote by the body that has to approve treaties in a particular nation. Um, I, I'm trying to think of I, I, yeah I, I um, one thing I didn't discuss but is, is very interesting is what the justices' views are of international law and I, I have you know this, uh, just one little thing from Justice Breyer just to give you a sense of because there are justices who are very much in favor of using it for Reasons that they could they could well defend to you. I mean, let me just see if I can quote Breyer so I won't characterize what he says. Okay, now he said this to the ABA a couple years ago and he repeated basically the same thing this summer. We find an increasing number of issues, including constitutional issues, where the decisions of foreign courts help by offering points of comparison. This change reflects the quote globalization end quote, of human rights, a phrase that refers to the ever stronger consensus now near worldwide as to the importance of protecting basic human rights. The embodiment of that consensus in legal documents such as national constitutions and international treaties and the related decision to enlist judges as instruments to help make the protection effective in practice. Um, So I, I, I don't, I'm not aware of anything they have said, but the traditional practice in the U.S. has been reluctance to find customary international law because under that classical view, it was it didn't have anything to do with human rights. It had to do with relations between, say, Great Britain and the United States. So um, I don't know their particular views, but I know that Breyer, Ginsburg, and O'Connor and Kennedy are very much in favor of more of it. And in fact, maybe to your surprise, Rehnquist um, several years ago was was the first person to kind of write about it. So I don't know for sure where they stand, but um, there was an important case about two years ago called SOSA in which the Supreme Court refused to find an implied cause of action on a human rights allegation. Because even if you can find something violated, a law, a, a custom violated, the question is can you sue? I mean who you know, I said they threw out the court of the center the case for the Center for Reproductive Rights in the Southern District. Didn't have standing. Well, do I have standing to assert a violation of human rights? Well, the Supreme Court said a couple years ago, we're not going to imply it. If there's going to be one, it's going to have to be written. Congress is going to have to create a cause of action. I, I, I happen
0: to see that part of the hearings of Judge Lee. Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. He was very critical
1: of foreign law, which is not precisely the same thing, but it's probably... The only reason I... I don't want to get too technical about it, but foreign law just means, like I said, they looked to the European Court of Human Rights. They didn't say they were bound by it, but they looked at it to illuminate their consideration. And Breyer, I mean, uh, Alito, is very negative about that. Um, So I assume he would not be...
0: my understanding of Alito is of the meaning of American constitutional provisions, right? Um, so something like cruel and unusual punishment or something like that. He wouldn't look to what courts have done in other nations or what legislatures have done. He'd only look to American precedent and so forth. Um, but, you know, it still leaves open the question of what foreign law is applicable through American courts yeah. because of either it's it's, it's its uh, uh, ratification, if you will, by Congress or however such law Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't
1: rule out customary international law, but uh, it would rule out, if he, if he were writing the majority, what was done in Lawrence v. Texas, where he wouldn't look to the European Court of Human Rights to right. understand the meaning of the Constitution. doesn't say what he'd do about customary international law, but I, do, I, I will say this. There's been a growing surge... Of argumentation about customary international law, which goes back all the way to a Philartiga case back in uh, the late 70s. And that has just about come to an end because a lot of the scholarly commentary has shown that that's not the traditional way customary international law develops. And in that Sosa case in the Supreme Court, they backed away from implying a cause of action. So if you don't have a cause of action, you can't sue. In a sense, you could say, What difference does it make if I? So that's peak. Well, there, I mean, there, there there really aren't any there aren't any mechanisms for ensuring compliance with the human rights uh, these human rights treaties. The only uh, quasi mechanism is the prac the existence of these interpretive committees, which receive annual reports and we are not annual reports but uh, periodic reports, and then tell the nation whether they think the nation's doing the right thing. Um, there, there, there are no other mechanisms to force w- uh, compliance. Now, yeah, there are no other formal mechanisms to enforce compliance. A lot of, you know, so for instance, many nations who don't have the active uh, judiciary we have or whose legal system is not as developed as ours will ratify any a convention a treaty because they're not, they don't care, they're not going to follow it. But nobody can make them follow it, and nobody really cares if they follow it, so they just ratify it. But it's in countries, you know, of Western Europe and the U.S. and other places where legal system is very advanced and where our citizenry will go into court, if they can, under some cause of action to sue, that it's a bigger deal about these treaties. But there are many nations who ratify them with every intention of never complying with them, and nobody can force them to. Well, I, I'm, I'm very, uh, well, I don't think there's an effort. I think the effort to undermine the natural family is very, very, very limited, extraordinarily limited, basically to the Western European nations and some others, maybe Canada and some others. The rest of the world has does not desire to do that. When the U.S., for the first time under President Bush, and for the first time in eight years, mentioned the words, the family, and the General Assembly, there was an uproar of applause. And third world delegates were jumping up and down, clapping, because they support the family. So the only way to undermine it, I think, is this argument about customary international law, because you'll never get a treaty that undermines nations won't sign express language, so you have to do it in a kind of a stealth way and argue that customary international law has built up so as to undermine the family. And I think that's what's so important about the Doha Declaration is it's, it's broken that. And that, I don't think that argument is even colorable anymore in, a, in court. So I'm, I guess I'm very optimistic in that sense. Um, That's right. That's right. I mean, nobody, you know, rallied to the Netherlands ambassador when he said that you could not deny a right to marriage based on sexual orientation. Nobody. Only the European. Even anyway, it's it's complicated because many European nations don't support that. But they get in a caucus and they decide on a position. They have to stick with the position. So I know several European nations that didn't support that. But even. But beyond that, there's no no support. American courts do have support in the Indian courts. With what? English courts. yeah I mean to some extent they will and it's a battle within the Supreme Court as to the extent they're going to do it you mean because the court. I think the answer is yes, but it—but it, it, it's curious because in Lawrence v. Texas, the reason Kennedy, who wrote the majority opinion, at least the way he led into his discussion of Europe, was to point out that Justice Chief Justice Berger and Bowers v. Hardwick had talked about uh, European and other presidents. But it's not—it's not binding, and um, I don't—I I, don't—I don't think it would have no, to be. A Well, I, I guess I don't is think... The that,
2: court
1: that it 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 it. Well, again, I think it depends on whether it's Justice Breyer or his equivalent in the state court that you're talking about or whether it's Justice Alito and his equivalent in the state court as to whether they pay any attention to it at all. But I think it's important for, uh, for people who don't know about the European Court of Human Rights and European law, it's very different from our law. They have... Uh, a doctrine of the evolving meaning of terms. And um, that's not the way our law works. And
0: when I mentioned
1: the, the case that was cited by the Supreme Court in Bowers, I mean in Lawrence v. Texas, what is bizarre to me in that case was that in interpreting a treaty written 30 years before the decision, the European Court of Human Rights looked to a contemporary document from a different legal body, which is the European Union. This was the Council of Europe. To interpret what words meant in a document adopted by parties 30 years before, they looked to a contemporary document that had never been ratified by the by anybody in Europe and has never been ratified to this day. So I think you'd have to look to those kind of decisions with, with great reluctance and very infrequently.
2: Professor George. Uh, well, I don't know, I don't know why,
1: Well, <clears throat> several parts to that answer that is it, it's, it's not a big issue because the, the words and the language used, and it has been used all along, talks about the natural family, and there's no, no uh, references to polygamy. So the question is how can Muslim countries where they have polygamy endorse this kind of language? And there was. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there's this language called various forms of the family exist. And that language is, you know, it goes, goes back to Cairo or beyond. But what is usually the statement that is usually put in one of these consensus documents at the end of a session is something like this. Okay, this is from the uh, U.N. Special Session on Children, and its consensus document was called A World Fit for Children. Um, It has a long paragraph, not not comparing U.N. talk, not that but a pretty long paragraph dealing with the family, and at the end of it it says, bearing in mind that in different cultural, social, and political systems, uh, various forms of the family exist, so that's that's where the Muslims. We don't have that in the Doha Declaration, and they endorse the Doha Declaration. So you'll have to ask them why they did it. But that's that's how it's gotten around in most UN meetings. How much? You know, I, I, I'm I'm not an expert in it, but my impression from my contacts uh, in that world is that it is a class thing. It's the richer people who ha- who the richer uh, men who are likely to have more than one wife. So I, I don't I don't really know if kind of in rural in rural uh, parts of the Middle East and other places it's practiced.
0: No, I mean, not in
1: so many terms.
0: Well, do you I mean, mean... Is there any, anything that would lead a Muslim to think that it's really suggesting monogamy? Uh,
1: well, you know, um, I can tell you that in the conversation surrounding the holding of the Doha Conference, it was clear to everyone that this did not uh, endorse polygamy, and the Muslim nations didn't care because they wanted to they wanted to support the natural family this doesn't attack polygamy doesn't endorse it but they they made no issue of it and didn't didn't want to
0: so what what is it that they would agree to along with the monogamists as to what the natural family is I, I,
1: you know I think they're they're the natural family means what a monog- oh, well what anybody would say husband wife children Beyond that, you might, I mean, some of them, I mean, some of what we consider an extended family, they consider the family. So they might say, an uncle is like a brother. They don't even have a different word for it. They'll call him brother. But what they're endorsing here is the terms as used in the Universal Declaration, which does show a family as a marriage between one man and one woman. So... Well,
2: yeah, but I mean, as I understand, they claim their form of marriage meets that standard because each marriage is an individual marriage, yeah. You know, Harry and Sally, Harry and Jill, Harry and Nancy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so so instead so 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 of a polyamory or something like that, where everybody you the group is, they're okay, all married to each other. You know, yeah. And sexual relations.
1: Are wider than, than what you have in polygamy, but um, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I've you know, um, you might well anyway. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know how the The head of Qatar would answer that question. You know, the sheikh. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Yes, sir. It strikes me
2: that. Well, you know,
1: if, that, if that's the question, then, you know, it can be proposed and a treaty can be adopted. But what you can't do is through customary international law purport to find an international consensus behind uh, gay marriage. So the, nation, the nations who were involved in the Doha process thought it was important to reaffirm the, tradi- the traditional natural family. Didn't say anything one way or the other about gay marriage. So, if you know, if what's if if that's if what you said is true, the simple answer is for the nations to pass to have a treaty, or for a na- or a nation to pass a law, but not do it through customary international law. One more. the chances of I don't think it I mean I don't think it's going to happen uh, I, I don't know if, um, see I think the important thing is if if you you know if you do believe that it's a good it would be a good thing or not a bad thing convince your fellow citizens or if Canada believes it convince the other nations pass a treaty um, to do it so I think that then puts the issue on the table where it should be, which is a discussion among members of, say, a democracy or a, uh, a world assembly. So I don't expect any kind of what you were talking about, shadow thing or whatever, to develop. I think that um, I think at this point, if it's <coughs> going to be proposed, it's going to have to be out there. You mean that you'll have domestic partnerships uh, or their equivalents for homosexuals and you'll have marriage for... Well, whatever may happen or or not in New Jersey, it's not going to happen internationally, and it it won't be imposed on the United States and and through the Supremacy Clause on New Jersey. Uh, I don't see that happening. Okay. Well, please join
0: me in thanking... We hope to see you on Thursday. We have a reception uh, in the back. Please join us for that.